The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, again, let me just say happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers that are represented here in our congregation. Um, I think it's almost cliche now to say that mothers are the unsung heroes of society. It's, um, it's always interesting to see these attempts to try to quantify the um, monetary worth of the work a mother does. And so if you look at some of the recent data on it, um, I think what they calculate is that if you add up everything that the mother does for the family, um, they should probably get a salary of something around 95000 to $180,000 a year based on whichever estimate that you take a look at. This past Advent season, I had actually shared the story of my own mother uh, who drove all the way down to Florida to be with me when I was a high school student. It was when I was in training for my first mission trip to go to Africa. And that training was so hard. They called it boot camp. And I was suffering so deeply that I wrote this very distressing letter home saying that I didn't even think I was going to make it, that I was pretty sure I wasn't going to get on that airplane and go to Africa. And in response to that letter that I wrote home, my mother actually got in a car and drove all the way from Chicago to Florida in order to comfort me and support me, to make sure also I think that I got on that airplane and went to Africa and didn't uh, back out of that commitment that I had made. And I I think that's a mother's love, isn't it? And I I think probably so many of you in this room have stories to share of your own mother and ways that you've experienced her love and her sacrifice for you. I was going to conclude our series today on the fruit of the Spirit uh, with this topic of self-control. But in light of Catalyst joining us for worship, I've decided to actually do that message next week and take a step back and look at a a big picture of the kind of life that God is inviting us into when we're talking about bearing this fruit of the Spirit in our life. And so I want to actually set up this message by looking at just a really brief uh, TikTok video. I am not really on TikTok. I don't have the app installed on my phone. So I have no idea how viral this video was. Maybe everyone's seen it, or maybe no one has seen it. I don't know why, but it caught my attention. And so uh, let's take a look at that video, and then we'll, we'll go on. For those of you who are too old to understand what you just watched, it looked like this guy was playing a game of cat and mouse trying to shoot video of this pretty lady. <laughs> but it actually turns out that he was filming himself the whole time. Um, in 2010, the iPhone 4 was released by Apple. And what was so remarkable about this phone was was that it was the first phone that was produced by Apple with a front-facing camera. And with it came the emergence of the selfie generation because an entire generation was born that said that this photo is so much less interesting than this photo. You see what I'm saying? Why would anyone want a boring picture of a bunch of mountains and a lake? Ah, but a picture of me in front of those mountains and that lake is totally 
a different story. I am not interested in pictures of BTS live in concert as much as I am interested in a picture of me in front of BTS live in a concert. Who cares about a picture of an old man like the Pope? But a picture of me with the Pope, that is worth posting. Here's another Pope selfie. Look at the expression on his face. <laughs> This poor man. Can you imagine how many hundreds of thousands of selfies this guy has had to take? Want to see one more? <laughs> I just would give a million dollars to know what he's thinking at that moment because he has this look on his face like, just kill me now, right? The most powerful man in the Roman Catholic Church has been reduced to a living Instagram spot. And what's concerning is not just the fact that the kind of pictures we're taking now has so dramatically changed with the forward-facing camera, but also what we're doing with these images, posting them on social media in order to get likes. We have to be careful about making simplistic conclusions here. But it may be more than just coincidence that not only was the iPhone 4 with the forward-facing camera released in 2010, but it also marks the beginning of the dramatic rise of mental health issues among our youth, especially among our girls. Is it just coincidence? I'm not so sure. Jonathan Haidt writes in this Atlantic article about this trend that's so worrisome. The toxicity comes from the very nature of a platform that girls use to post photogra photographs of themselves and await the public's judgment of others. Something terrible has happened to Gen Z, the generation born after 1996. Rates of teen depression and anxiety have gone up and down over time. But it is rare to find a substantial and sustained change occurring within just two or three years. Yet when we look at what happened to American teens in the early 2010s, we see many such turning points, usually sharper for girls. Notably, girls became much heavier users of the new visually oriented platforms, primarily Instagram. Boys are glued to their screens as well, but they aren't using social media as much. They spend far more time playing video games. When a boy steps away from the console, he does not spend the next few hours worrying about what other players are saying about him. Instagram, in contrast, can loom in a girl's mind even when the app is not open, driving hours of obsessive thought, worry, and shame. The evidence is not just circumstantial. We also have eyewitness testimony. In 2017, British researchers asked 1,500 teens to rate how each of the major social media platforms affected them on certain well-being measures, including anxiety, loneliness, body image, and sleep. Instagram scored as the most harmful. Facebook's own research, Facebook is the owner of Instagram, leaked by the whistleblower Francis Haugen had a similar finding. Teens blame Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression. The research also noted that social comparison is worse on Instagram than on rival apps. Snapchat's filters keep the focus on the face, 
whereas Instagram focuses heavily on the body and lifestyle. A young girl submitted a question to a British advice columnist in the UK named Colleen, and she wrote these distressing words. Dear Colleen, I see all these pretty girls on social media doing glamorous poses, but it makes me feel like crying because if I try to do the same, I just embarrass myself. If you're going to tell me that it doesn't matter what I look like and that I'm unique and all that rubbish, then that's a waste of my time too. People tell me things that are like that all the time, but I'm just ugly. My body, face, everything is just ugly. What can I do about how I'm feeling? It's interesting. The advice columnist's response began with this very first line when she wrote back to this girl, your letter is why I hate social media. This is a brave new world that we've entered into of selfies and social media, turning the camera inwardly on ourselves and then posting those images, nervously awaiting the approval of our friends. And the question is, how is all of this impacting the way that we see ourselves and our world? And I would say it's very tempting to say that this is a Gen Z problem. You know, it's the problem of our kids. But the truth is none of us are immune to what's happening in our society today. I wonder actually how many of you have hesitated to post pictures of your unimpressive vacation to somewhere in the Midwest like the Wisconsin Dells. Because you see your friends posting from exotic tropical locations in exclusive resorts. And do you ever wonder what the problem is with your kid when you see everyone else posting about their kids and the awards that they're getting and their achievements? And you're saying, what's the problem with my kid? I feel in some ways like I live like a hermit in a cave because the truth is I've really opted out of social media uh, largely. I don't really uh, post ever. Um, I go on like once a week on Facebook and just like as many people's posts as I can just to, you know, feel like I'm present. Um, but one of the reasons, if I'm honest, as to why I've gotten, gotten away from social media, particularly Facebook, is that I never got done looking at my feeds and feeling better about myself afterward. And it hit me especially hard when I saw posts about all of the exciting things that other churches were doing, or even worse, when my pastor friends were doing, when they were attending or even speaking at high-powered conferences, and when they were rubbing shoulders with celebrity pastors. And it was hard not to feel like a loser when I saw those posts. I mean, why isn't ICC doing that? Why aren't we growing like that? Uh, why wasn't I invited to speak at that conference? Why that guy, man? And you know, even well-meaning pastor friends of mine have actually given me a hard time because I'm so invisible online. And they're, they're really pressuring me, saying, man, dude, you got to build your platform. You know, you got to build your brand. If you want ICC to grow, you got to be on social media. It's the poison in our air, and we're all breathing it. Daniel Yankelevich writes, 
by concentrating day and night on your feelings, potentials, needs, wants, and desires, and by learning to assert them more freely, you do not become a freer, more spontaneous, more creative self. You become a narrower, more self-centered, more isolated one. You do not grow, you shrink. This constant inward stare of obsessing over ourselves, this is not what we were created for. A life lived on these terms is not capable of nourishing and sustaining the human spirit. It violates the very nature of what we were made for. Because what the Bible tells us is that we were created to be worshipers. This is the very core of our identity. What this is saying is that we cannot help but worship something. But the problem is we are worshiping all the wrong things. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 1 to 2. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affairs. What God is essentially saying is that by worshiping anything other than me, it is like you are eating spiritual junk food that cannot sustain real life in you. It's empty calories. You're consuming and consuming and consuming, and it's never enough. How many of you teens are on TikTok literally scrolling mindlessly after one TikTok after another, well beyond the point that you're even enjoying it anymore? But you just do it and do it out of habit, out of addiction, because you don't know what else to do with your time. So the question is, what is the solution? What is the solution? Well, I would argue that what we need to do is to take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on God. In other words, rather than trying to find a beauty or a worth in ourselves. What the Bible invites us to do is to be captured by the beauty and the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah had a very powerful experience encountering God in his glory. In chapter 6, verse 1 to 3 of Isaiah, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings that covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah would serve as a prophet of God in an incredibly dark time in Israel's history when no one wanted to follow God. And what would... What he would experience in his ministry is that no matter how passionately and fervently and faithfully he preached and prophesied the word of God, nobody listened. It's even believed that he died a violent death at the temple grounds, killed by the very people that he was serving because they didn't like what he was saying. And what kept Isaiah going through such a hard life? I believe it was this vision of God that captured his heart. 
to give him strength to face every challenge that he had to deal with. Because as he testified, I saw the Lord. I saw him. I saw him in his glory, and that has won my heart in a way that no trial in this life could ever compete with. I saw the Lord. I think this is the same testimony of Moses as he was dealing with such an incredibly difficult ministry himself with these people that he was leading that was constantly complaining about everything and rebelling against God. And in the midst of all of that struggle, Moses declares to God one request. He says to Moses, he, Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me that all of this is worth it. Everything that you're asking me to do, show me, God, that you are worth it. You are worthy of everything that you are asking of me. Moses not only wanted to see God's glory, he needed to see God's glory. He needed to know that all of the struggle and the sacrifice was worth it, that God was worthy of it all. I believe it is precisely this hunger for glory, to be swept up by the greatness of something so much bigger than ourselves, that drives us to places like the ocean or to the Grand Canyon. Why do we go to these places? It is because witnessing this grandeur and feeling our appropriate smallness in the face of that greatness is at the core of our identity as worshipers. We long for these experiences, to be in the presence of something bigger than us, because we were made for that. John Piper writes, the really wonderful moments of joy in this world are not the moments of self-satisfaction, but self-forgetfulness. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. In other words, no one goes to the Grand Canyon and goes, I am great. If you do, you are insane. Something is really wrong with you. What the Bible tells us is this hunger for praising greatness is embedded into our DNA. It is written into the very fabric of your soul. C.S. Lewis had this really hard time accepting all of these passages in the Bible that are constantly telling us to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And when he really stopped and thought about it, he said that, it, that God comes across as an insecure woman who is begging for compliments. What kind of sexist I, I understand, but he's, he's in the 1940s or so, but um, he basically called the constant demands of God to praise him as, quote, the soundings of an old woman seeking compliments to herself. He just said God just sounds so vain, so needy. Why does he always want us to praise him? But as he studied the Psalms, he came to this breakthrough realization of what praise was all about. In his reflections on the Psalms, he writes, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite game. 
My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what we indeed we cannot help doing about everything else we value. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Lewis is getting it is that there's something about worship that fills this deepest longing in us that completes us. That's why we can't wait to tell somebody about a new restaurant that we discovered or why we can't wait to tell our friend about this crazy TikTok that we just watched that just blew us away. It explains why we are so obsessed with sports. I can still remember the goosebumps that I would get when I went to the United Center and watched a Bulls game with Michael Jordan playing. Every time the lights go out, you just feel your heart racing, and everyone's waiting for that moment when the announcer says, from North Carolina, at guard, six foot six, and the place is just going insane. And there's Michael Jordan. And, then, and the place just erupts in the loudest, honest to God to date, the loudest applause I have ever heard. And that is every single home game at the United Center. You were in the house of Michael, and you knew it. And we cheered, and we screamed, and we applauded, not only to praise Michael Jordan's greatness, but the truth is to participate in it. We wanted a piece of that. It's why I'm wearing Jordan 1s right now, because when I wear them, I am just a little like Mike, aren't I, right? Not really, but that's why fans wear the jerseys of their favorite players. If you really think about it, it's kind of stupid, isn't it? You're not on the team. Why are you dressed for your uniform, right? It would be like going to the hospital to visit your friend who is sick and coming in a doctor's coat. And a nurse saying, are you a doctor? You go, no, but I'm just a real fan of the doctors in this hospital, right? It's ridiculous. Why do we do it? It's because when I wear that uniform, I feel like a little bit of that glory is mine. I'm sharing in it. I'm participating in it. It's also why when players walk to the locker room, you see this all the time. Fans reaching out to get a high five from their favorite players. Because just the thought of touching this guy would be a dream come true. Because why? Because we all desperately long to touch glory. We want to be part of the glory and the greatness that we witness, to be participants in it. Why? Because we were made to worship. Lewis writes about this phenomenon. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And what I want to say to you today is that this glory of God has the power to cure us from self-obsession. But I also want to say that it's not just His greatness alone. When we fix our eyes on God, what we also discover is in addition to His greatness 
is his love. And what the Bible also tells us is that we are looking for love in all of the wrong places. We're looking to all of the wrong things to tell us who we are and what we're worth. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. What the Bible is saying is let the love of God define you. In this brutal world where everyone is trying to take you apart, let the love of God define you. It's interesting, you know, I grew up in some pretty rough neighborhoods when I was a kid. When I really think back to it, it's insane. I used to regularly get into fistfights. It's like stuff in the movies, like I will meet you behind the school after school, and then we're literally punching each other. And the truth is a lot of it was the, res was the result of racist comments directed at me as an Asian kid. And I never took it lying down. If anyone called me a racist slur, I was ready to fight and defend myself. But what was interesting as I thought back to that is, despite all of this bullying and fights that I got into and racial slurs that I was called, because I was like the only Asian kid in my school, it never made me question my worth or who I was. I thought about that. It never made me insecure about my identity. And you know why? It's because my parents loved me and they told me that they loved me all the time. I was so secure in my parents' love that despite what these guys were calling me at school, I never thought I was what they were calling me. And I think that's what God is saying to us. Whatever this world tries to label you as, and tell you you are, when you truly believe the love of God, none of that can touch you. John 14, verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What Jesus is saying is, I will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever you go through in this life, know that my love is always there for you. And it is in this understanding of who God is that we can live a true life of peace in all circumstances. That's why Paul could say as he's rotting in prison in Philippians 4, 12 through 13, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It doesn't matter how many likes I get on that post. It doesn't matter if families are vacationing in far more expensive resorts than we are. It doesn't matter that a pastor is being invited to speak at a conference where I was not invited. None of that matters. I have learned to be content in all things because God's love for me defines me. But I think the Bible is telling us something even more profound about the impact of believing this in our hearts. And it is that when we truly believe that this is how God treats us and who we are, I am now suddenly emboldened to be able to truly love others in the love of God and care for them as God cares for them. I no longer have to see people as my enemies or even the competition. 
And even if they're trying to attack me or bring me down, I can return their aggression with kindness and with love. That's what Joseph would experience in the book of Genesis when he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And you can imagine what, what that would do to the mind of a person being betrayed like that by your own family. And yet because Joseph knew that God was always with him, when his brothers actually came looking for help and didn't know that it was Joseph, rather than attacking them or getting revenge on them, Joseph showed kindness to them and loved them. It was not because of anything he saw in this, these brothers, but it was because he knew his God. And that even though his brothers were there to harm him, the God that he worshipped was there to take that brokenness and redeem it for glory. That's why Joseph would testify in Genesis 50, verse 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What's crazy to me is that in this story, the entire future of this nation of Israel hinged on how Joseph would act in that moment to his brothers. And in that moment, because of his faith in God, Joseph loved his brothers who hurt him. This was not about him being the better man. It was not about him being virtuous. It was about him believing that there was a God in this universe that loved him and cared for him. So that no matter what others were trying to do to him, nothing could stop the love of God from being poured out on him. It's only a person that believes in that who could truly love their enemy and care for those who hurt them and don't feel the need to retaliate fight back, but can love everyone equally because of the love of God that is caring for their lives. That's what I would invite us to reflect on as we think about what this means to follow God, to live in His ways, and to reflect His image in the same love that He pours into us, we show to others. It's only when we truly understand these things are true of us that we can live this life of faith that we're called to. Let's pray.